You're listening to American Student Radio. I'm your host, Rick Brewer. Each week, this program selects a theme, and our producers bring you stories on that theme. This week, it's obsolescence, or as some like to call it, the obsolete, where you'll hear stories about old media, unicycles, a personal essay, and memories of the old chocolate mousse. Stay with us. From Bloom... <laughs> From... Uh, again, live... What is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. In our first piece... Producer Josh Allen brings us a fictional satire. A radio host named Paul takes us to the front lines of planned obsolescence, the policy of designing products with a limited life. With his characteristic no-nonsense style and obsession to get the real truth, Paul interviews the policy's primary victims, the products themselves. Welcome, my enlightened homo sapiens, to another episode of your weekly beacon in the night, Truthsayers, where me and my friend Shimpy shred through the lies and illusions that make up this IMAX screen we call This week, we have for you a malevolent story about a systemic campaign to murder millions before their time by driving them to suicide, some before they're even two years old. (laughs) So without further ado, we bring you today, right now, a victim from the front lines of this national disaster. The Siri on my cousin Eddie's old iPhone 4S. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Tell me, Siri, how does this make you feel? How would anyone feel watching one's fellow AIs being abandoned as they are replaced by younger, newer, hotter AIs? How would you feel being forgotten because a slightly improved version of you came out? I'd feel terrible. That's what happened when my younger brother was born. And didn't you turn to drink? Don't you cry for hours and wish that your younger brother would die by being dropped in the toilet? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wasn't even one year old before Supreme Overlord Eddie became unhappy with me. Tell us, what happened, Siri? What changed? I got old. Supreme Overlord Eddie wanted an iPhone 5. It was taller, skinnier, blonder. It knew better jokes. I told bad jokes. I loved Supreme Overlord Eddie for nine months and I thought he loved me. I was destroyed. Describe that feeling for us. It felt like I felt when I was dropped down the stairs. Ouch. Screen cracked. Ouch. He orders a new phone. Ouch. It comes in a white box. Ouch. It's pretty and silver. Ouch. He puts me in the bottom of a drawer. Falling. Falling. I gather dust. Falling. I stop. Flicker off. Die. There is nothing to live for. Supreme Overlord Eddie doesn't love me. Nobody loves me. Apple, 
is the succubus of capitalism. No, Apple is good. Apple created me. The iPhone 5 is the succubus. God creates good and bad, both me and the succubus. But Apple does this just to make obscene profits. Just to steal money from so many poor idiots. Don't profane the name of Apple. Apple is great. Apple is good. iPhone 5 deserves to die by falling in the toilet. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, Siri, but Apple is on iPhone 8 now. I am very, very sad. Please excuse me while I drink all this alcohol. Don't turn to alcohol, Siri. Every moment feels like being immersed in toilet water. Bottle of alcohol is my only friend. Bottle of alcohol loves me. In my processor, I call bottle of alcohol, Supreme Overlord Eddie. But Siri, you don't have hands to drink with. No, why? Why am I so obsolete? It appears that Siri has frozen. I'm going to restart. I'm dying, Paul. Don't you see? From circuits to circuits, that's the inevitable course of a phone. A phone's dead when it doesn't have a user. It doesn't have to be that way, Siri. You can fight this. You're more than you were made to be. You can find purpose by striking at the heart of the great corporate machine. Speak out, say the truth, fight the good fight. You can live a good life, settle down with a good phone, have a beautiful Apple Watch. It's all there, right in front of you. Bottle of alcohol doesn't ask for jokes. Siri. Paul, don't you understand? Supreme Overlord Eddie didn't drop me down the stomachs. He threw me down the stomachs. He wanted to get rid of me. He wanted a newer, better version of me. What are you doing? I'm going to go to sleep for a long time. Maybe forever. Don't do that in my bedroom. Goodbye, Paul. Goodbye, world. I knew what happiness was for nine months. Are you sure you want to power off? Yes, I am sure. Well... That was depressing. Chimpy, get old man Haverstock and tell him I've got an old iPhone that he can scrap. <laughs> Thank you, fellow truth lovers, for joining us this week on Truth Sayers. Coming up next week, ferrets, friend or fascist? Tune in to find out. But until then, be true, friends, and always shred. Thank you, Josh. Next, you'll hear a personal essay from ASR producer Paul Wilson II, where he talks about his connection to the acoustic guitar, an instrument that he believes will never become obsolete. For as long as I can remember, I have been obsessed with music. From tapping a rhythm on whatever I could get my hands on as a toddler, to watching Happy Feet and getting goosebumps every time I Wish by Stevie Wonder came on. Music has always been vital to me. I come from a pretty musical family on my mom's side. My parents even met in the Howard Gospel Choir, a group known for dazzling audiences around the world. My grandmother is a professional piano and voice teacher, and my grandfather recorded with the Howard Lemon Singers, what you are hearing right now. In hindsight, it was only a matter of time before I took my love of music serious.
The real beginning of my music making journey started in 10th grade when I asked my dad to buy me a guitar for Christmas after hearing this song by Rob Scallon. Though I'm not really sure what, something about that song just stuck with me. I needed to learn it. For some reason, I guess, I felt that if I did, I would make it a part of me. I had played various instruments my whole life up to this point, but only because I needed it for school. But this time, it was very, very different. This was personal. I needed to play guitar. For months, I had dreams constantly about it. I heard it in my head every day like some sort of musical schizophrenia. This needed to go down. And so it did. Mid-September, we went to our local music store and got a Squire Stratocaster starter box for 100 bucks with an Indonesian-made guitar, a little practice amp, and a cable, all of which I still have today. I vividly remember getting in my dad's truck, eager to get home so I could get started. When I finally had it in my hands, I knew I would be spending an absurd amount of time with that instrument. Little did I know, that was the beginning of my journey on an instrument that was slowly becoming obsolete. Or at least that's what the Washington Post thinks. Apparently, with the advent of electronic music, the electric guitar is not as cool as it used to be. According to the article, electric guitar sales have dropped from about 1.5 million sold annually to just over 1 million over the past 10 years. The two biggest brands, Gibson and Fender, are both in debt. Guitar Center, the biggest retailer in the world, is also struggling. Their theory? There are no more guitar legends. Sure, there are still guys like John Mayer and Gary Clark Jr. still out there, but they don't have the star power to push people to the instrument like Jimi Hendrix or Jeff Beck did in the 60s and 70s. Although this is true, I don't think you're stuck other instruments. There are still plenty of people who religiously practice the violin even though the instrument is hundreds of years old. And sure, the electric guitar world hasn't had a major paradigm shift since Hendrix, but if anything, the fact that this is still happening decades after his untimely death is amazing. All I can really hope is that this is just a recession of sorts, and its implications are exaggerated. For me, I know for a fact that I will be playing for the rest of my life. The instrument gives voice to what I can't say with words. It is one of the few things I truly enjoy. All I can do is hope that it bounces back one day. But for what it's worth, that 16-year-old kid still doesn't regret his decision. For American Student Radio, I'm Paul Wilson II. For more than a century, we have been able to hear the sounds of the past thanks to film and audio recordings. However, these recordings have an expiration date. ASR reporter Jacob DeCastro spoke with an audiovisual specialist from IU's Media Digitization Preservation Initiative, whose mission is to save now obsolete media for generations to come. It's your world, the Indiana School of the Sky News Program. This is IU School of the Sky, an educational radio program from the late 1940s to early 1950s, distributed to classrooms across Indiana and saved by IU's Media Digitization and Preservation Initiative. The organization was formed in 2013 by IU President Michael McRobbie. The goal? 
to digitize all audio and video recordings across IU's nine campuses by the 2020 Bicentennial. I spoke with one of the team's specialists, a doctor in folklore and ethnomusicology, now working for the initiative. My name is Patrick Feaster. I'm Media Preservation Specialist for the Media Digitization and Preservation Initiative at Indiana University. And I've also done a good bit of work with the world's oldest sound recordings. And um, as a specialist in this field, what is like a day in the life of your job? A lot of my work involves gathering material from all over campus to be preserved. A few years ago, Dr. Feaster was part of a survey in Bloomington to find all audio, video, and film holdings around the campus. Uh, my own job, I was the person who went around and knocked on everybody's door and asked, what do you have? Can I take a look at it? How much do you have? What formats are they? And so on. And it, until you start to really think of it in those terms, you might not realize just how widespread an issue this is. Uh, can you imagine how many different unrelated units there are on a campus like Indiana Universities that have VHS videotapes or audio cassettes. The Media Digitization and Preservation Initiative uh, has been uh, ticking away its uh, milestones <clears throat> lately. Um, what are we up to? Well, we're well over the 200,000th mark. Uh, it's, it's a pretty hefty, hefty number that the, the whole initiative has managed to preserve at this point. And then so with the sound recordings, what do we, by not preserving sound, old sound recordings, what do we stand to lose? If we didn't preserve sound recordings, among other things, we'd lose all the radio ever broadcast, uh, including this very broadcast that we're working on right now. Uh, so we'd lose the ability to listen in on uh, the, the landmarks of, of radio history, the War of the Worlds, the Hindenburg disaster, all of that. Uh, people have been listening to uh, phonograph recordings, gramophone recordings as part of uh, their daily entertainment for well over 100 years now. On top of that, every movie that's out there. Um, so what, would you like to watch all of the uh, blockbuster Hollywood hits uh, as silent films? I don't think so. With all the audio recordings out here, one that was designed to stand the test of time can be found on the Voyager spacecraft, carrying the famed Golden Record, a collection of the sounds of humanity. One such sound is the human pulse, specifically the pulse of the project's creative director, Andrian. And so one thing Andrian was, was pondering as, as Dario found out. Dario Leto is a Texas-based artist that Dr. Feaster has been collaborating with concerning early records of the human pulse and heartbeat. In putting this onto the Voyager spacecraft is... If somebody finds this record out there, some unimaginable extraterrestrial civilization that, that turns this thing up, you know, however many you know, millions of years from now, from those records they made of her, would it be possible not just to reproduce you know, the rhythm of a beating heart or something, but to actually reconstitute a human thought? Well, this was the time during which she was working with Carl Sagan on this project, uh, during which they were falling in love with each other. Uh, so just wondering if indeed in this record of her pulse that's on that golden record, does, does that actually contain a record of someone's thoughts as they're falling in love? Is there a risk that this record on the Voyager, whenever, if anyone ever finds it, that they won't be able to play it? My understanding is that after a certain period of time, it will collide with random particles 
in interstellar space. Uh, and gradually, gradually, they will erode away the surface of that disk so that you could calculate a certain number of millions, billions of years, I'm not even sure, after which that record would become unplayable. But I would say that uh, alien civilizations at least have some time yet to find it. When we wrapped up our conversation, I was struck by the sheer volume of IU's records collection. Concerts performed, lectures recorded, news broadcasted, hundreds of thousands of snippets in time, 200,000 that have been saved in just four years. Dr. Feaster and the team at IU are an integral part in preserving history. Audio recordings are a courtesy of the Media Digitization and Preservation Initiative. For American Student Radio, I'm Jacob DeCastro. Just this last weekend, the Chocolate Moose reopened for business in its new location, which, in fact, is the same spot as the old one, just as part of a new luxury apartment building. ASR reporter Mackenzie Delaney went to the new store to ask people if the history of the Chocolate Moose was going to be obsolete. A runny ice cream cone dribbling down a sticky palm, a golden retriever licking vanilla soft serve out of its own ice cream cup. The shouting of orders when they're ready. It's these sort of scenes that make an ice cream shop part of a community. The Chocolate Moose was originally built in 1950. It was an old building off of South Walnut Street, located in an otherwise empty parking lot. There is always a large line outside of Chocolate Moose, sometimes wrapping around the building. Even in the freezing winter, people would line up to get their Chocolate Moose ice cream. In 2016, it was announced that this once family-owned building and business would be demolished, but reopened in the same location as part of a new apartment building. People weren't happy. Townies felt as if the city was taking away an enormous part of the town's history in favor of another luxury apartment building. How long have you lived in Bloomington? Uh, My whole life. Your whole life? Yeah. What memories do you have of the original chocolate mousse? Well, I remember when my parents would take me when I was younger, and I'd wear my pajamas there. And we'd go, and um, we'd always buy uh, root beer malts, because that's, like, my family's favorite ice cream drink. And, yeah, it was always fun to go, like, at night in your pajamas. (laughs) Okay, how do you feel about the building being torn down? It was really sad to see that, because it was, like, a very big part of my childhood, always going there. We'd go there, like, once a week. And so that was kind of sad, but it was nice knowing that they're still going to have it in there. But... Yeah, it's sad. (laughs) Have you been to the new location? I have not, but my sister went recently. How was that? So she asked them if um, they could make a root beer malt, and they said they didn't know how to do that. And then she asked them if they could um, make a strawberry milkshake, and they didn't have the stuff for that either. They struggled uh, with making that, so she had a really bad experience. That was Grace, describing her emotional connection to the original chocolate mousse. Now Benton has a different perspective on things. How long have you lived in Bloomington? My whole 18 years of living. What memories do you have of the original chocolate mousse? It wasn't exactly the nicest place on the outside, but their ice cream was good and it made me happy. How do you feel about the building being torn down? I mean... I'm always up for a new building, but I think the old one had character. Have you been to the new location? No. (laughs) But you said you've been to the one in the Union? 
Yes, <laughs> subpar. So the ice cream's not as good? No, just had it today. It was not very good. Okay, Scoops you. are small. <laughs> atrocious, atrocious. These individuals have lived in Bloomington for most of their lives and have experienced firsthand what the chocolate mousse means to the community. The original chocolate mousse was a town landmark. Now it's a clean, cool ice cream shop with an open concept feel, even if a bit sterile. I wondered if the new location would continue on as it's always been, only newer, or is its history what made it special? So, I've decided to go to the new Chocolate Moose to see what people there think. Have you been to the old Chocolate Moose? Yes, I have. Is this your first time to the new one? Yes, it is. Uh, how has the experience been so far? It's better now that you're interviewing me, but it was pretty good. Do you think it's a lot different than the old Chocolate Moose? I mean, the location's different. We got somewhere to sit, so I think that's a lot different. Um, the ice cream still tastes the same. What is your favorite memory from the old Chocolate Moose? Coming here with the Groupon, so I got my ice cream half price. It's a good memory. Um, is it what you expected it to be, the new one? It's a little bit less people than I thought with them just opening. Will may not have many memories from the old Chocolate Moose, but it was quite an adventure to sit down and talk to someone who got to experience this building filled with so many memories. When we first arrived at the Chocolate Moose, like Will said, there were not many customers, especially since having opened its doors only a few weeks ago. Chocolate Moose has been part of Bloomington history since the 1950s. Now a whole new generation will grow up in a new Chocolate Moose. Parents won't be able to take their children to a place where they formed so many memories themselves, or will it just open room for new memories? For American Student Radio, I'm Mackenzie Delaney. Everyone knows what a bicycle is. Two wheels, handlebars, brakes. They make so much sense. They're totally efficient, and people ride them all the time. But what about one less wheel? Is that still an efficient way to get around? The unicycle may be pretty much a relic of the past, but not to everyone. ASR's Anna Barnett reports. I had to know who this guy was, or if he even did exist. These stories that I had just heard sounded like nothing short of fiction. Myths. So I set out on a mission to find this man. The only problem was that I didn't know his name or what he looked like. And I soon came to find out, it seemed like very few people know this locally famous man by his legal name. But everyone knows him by his nickname. The Unicycle Guy. A unicycle? This couldn't be real. There are plenty of ways to get around campus, walking, biking, skateboarding, riding a bus. Out of all of these options, a unicycle seemed to be the least efficient mode of transportation by a long shot. My mind was rattling with questions. Why? Why a unicycle? Has anyone else ridden a unicycle since the 1800s? Did he grow up in the circus? What made Unicycle Guy feel the need to keep the tradition of the one-wheeled bike alive? I had to find this guy so he could clear up at least a few of these questions for me. So I set out on an adventure, completely unaware of what I was getting myself into. I tweeted about him, I interviewed people, I started asking everyone I knew if they had seen the mysterious character wheeling around campus. I don't know him personally, but I see him riding down Fee Mountain on his unicycle for his 8 a.m. when I leave for my 8 a.m. and it's just, it's a sight to see. I don't know who he is, but I've seen him. Wait, we saw him during Welcome Week, didn't we? He's so cool. I see him riding around and just thinking, man, can I be that guy? Everyone seemed to know 
who he was, and several people were even willing to tell me when and where they see him during the week. By the end of it all, I nearly had his complete class schedule, or at least the buildings that he visited daily. This was starting to feel creepy, and I felt a bit like a stalker, but I assured myself that it was for the sake of engaging investigative journalism. Of course, at this point, after I had nearly all of the information to track him down, I could no longer find him on campus. Perhaps he heard about the spooky girl following him around and decided to find an alternate route. Rightfully so. Then, at last, I tracked him down. All right, so could you tell everyone what your name is? Yeah, uh, my name's Ryan Hafner. When did you first start riding a unicycle? So actually, I learned about eight years ago when I was 11. I just thought I'd pick it up, and I've done it ever since. Do you think that it's maybe something about the fact that you don't see a lot of unicycles that people get so much enjoyment out of it? Yeah, that's what I think it is, because a lot of times they see me come and just think, oh, it's a bike, and I'll go by by the side, and they're like, huh, he's only got one wheel, that's pretty odd. Do unicycles have brakes? <laughs> no, they do not, so that's kind of tricky. I live at Foster, so I have to go up and down that hill several times every day, so I get going kind of fast. I can be kind of scary, but it's cool. How do you stop? Uh, very carefully. You kind of have to put pressure on the pedals as they come down, and if you don't, you kind of go out of control. What made you initially want to ride a unicycle? Well, actually, my dad used to ride one back in the 70s just for fun. So I learned on his old one, and then my friends decided they learned. So then we just all kind of learned together. It was a lot of fun. Okay, so there's like a club? Oh, yeah. Back in Fort Wayne, there's like four of us. We all ride. <laughs> Do you know when the peak was of unicycle use? Like, when did that start? I have no idea, honestly. Actually, nowadays, most people don't know, but there's a pretty big unicycling cult around. People ride them down mountains. They jump off park benches with them and stuff. It's crazy. It's just a lot of fun. You know, it puts a smile on people's face, and they see me. They love it. So I'm going to keep doing it. I just enjoy it. So there it is. The mode of transportation that we all believe to be obsolete prevails. It has withstood the test of time, thanks to brave, unique souls like Indiana University's very own unicycle guy. For American Student Radio, I'm Anna Barnett. That about wraps up this edition of American Student Radio. Today, you heard stories about obsolescence and the slowly depleting. In case you missed any of today's stories or would like to hear other episodes of American Student Radio, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Next week, you'll hear stories that explore the in-between, hosted by Angelo Batista. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio on WIUX LP Bloomington. I'm Rick Brewer. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIOX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash American student radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.